Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon, and today my special guest is Harsha Jalil, who is the Chief People Officer at MongoDB. Harsha started her career in business development with a software company before finding her calling in HR at Cognizant, which is the large information technology services and consulting company. She spent 10 years at Cognizant, helping the company through a type of growth phase. Prior to joining MongoDB, Harsha was the vice president of HR at Unilever. She was responsible for delivering an end-to-end HR strategy and operations for Unilever's U.S. business. Hey, Harsha, how are you? I am good. How are you, John? I'm doing good. Awesome. (laughs) Great to to have you. It's it's an honor to be here. You are absolutely the best chief HR officer that I've ever met in my entire career. And I've always admired how you've balanced the support of the business with your support of the people, how have you been able to, you know, maintain that balance? Well, first of all, thank you. That is really high praise. I appreciate that very much. Uh, I'm going to record that and keep playing that back to myself every morning. You should. You should. Um, no, you know, it's if I think about my job, it is the very definition of my job. My job is both to support the business and to make sure there are most precious asset, which is our people, our employees, our talent are well taken care of. And so I think it starts with first understanding why am I here? Why, why, what is the role of a chief people officer? How do I balance the two? Look, I think ultimately we are the, 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 the specialty that an HR professional brings to the table, or at least I'd like to think I bring to the table is that we understand human behavior and we understand how human behavior manifests in the workplace. The reality is, I don't think that those two things, the balancing the business and taking care of your employees are that polar opposite of each other. People think it is. People think that it's one or the other. But the reality is there's a very big intersection in the middle. If you think about it like a Venn diagram, right? You've got what's right for the business, what's good for the employees. There is a huge intersection between those two concepts. And I think the key is that we have to focus on that because human behaviors drive ultimately the business outcomes we're looking for. Mm. And any business problem, I've always said, is if you peel the onion on it and try to really break it down, it breaks down to human behavior. So if you understand human behavior, you understand what motivates people, what excites them, what frustrates them, what makes them angry, you can get better outcomes out of them. And that directly connects to business outcomes. And the two things are complementary to each other. When you take care of your people, you're taking care of the business. When you take care of the business, you are taking care of the people because the business is doing well. It benefits your employees, right? Whether it's the stock price, whether it's the fact that we're continuing to be a growing company, 
the quality of the work we do, the variety of jobs we can offer our employees. All of these things are possible only when a business is successful. And as, as long as you understand that and you recognize that, it, it isn't that hard to drive the balance. I think you have to not think of it as an either or equation. That's been my approach to it. And which is why I think maybe I've been a little better at thinking about it. But sometimes the business now changes and it places unique demands on people to change. And they, and and HR has to get in the middle of that and try to help motivate them and get the people to see that the business has changed and that Mm -hmm. as part of the business you know, have to change. So that could be a real balancing act also. It, it it definitely is. And I think the business, all businesses have changed quite a bit post-COVID, as I think we all know. Uh, MongoDB, and I joined MongoDB actually in the middle of COVID, believe it or not. Lucky, um, lucky you. I, re- I remember, lucky you. <laughs> it, it was such an interesting onboarding experience because, you know, I, I'm a chief people officer, but I hadn't, I didn't meet people in the business for the first almost nine months until our offices actually reopened. So it was a, that's maybe a podcast by itself. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah. no, look, um, yes. I think if I, if I look at it, I look at that sort of changing motivations through two lenses. One is just the insane growth that at least the company I work with MongoDB has gone through in the last few years that has changed how people show up in the workplace. And then there's the COVID phenomenon, which I think is real. Um, I think the key with growth is I, I have this thing I say to people, you know, growth is very pretty from the outside. People love to work for a growing company because why not? Right. right. But I think people often also forget that growth, there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears behind it. Like it's intense. It's a lot of hard work. You don't get the kind of results we're delivering today. And we have in the past. And we know, I know we'll continue to deliver by just sitting around. It It comes because people are, want to make a difference. They want to make it matter. They, they are willing to, you know, stretch themselves beyond what they thought they were capable of. They're willing to work hard. And, and you've got to want that to be successful. Um, that exhilaration you get, I mean, the exhaustion, the exhilaration makes the exhaustion worth it. That's how I think. Right. Right. But, but it's not for everyone. And that's not a judgment statement. I, I think there are moments in your life when you're not ready for that and that's okay. To me, and I've there have been moments in my life where I feel like I don't know that I can do that. I want a more steady state job because, well, I have some things I need to take care of personally, whatever your motivations are. I think it's different people are motivated by different things. And I think that people forget that working in a growing company is intense and you've got to really want it if you if you if it's got to feel worth your while. Otherwise, it's going to feel like a chore and that will not be pleasant. So that's yeah. one aspect of it. Funny that you mentioned that we had uh, Brian Halligan, who was the CEO of and founder of HubSpot for 16 right. years. Yeah. And he said he was always looking for the magic moment when things were just going to change and go up, up into the yeah. right. And he yeah. said it never happened. It's a gr- it's a grind, you know, it is and a grind. if you want to get those positive results, you got to be ready to come to work. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think that you've, you, that has got to motivate you. And there are many people out there that are motivated by that, that challenge, because they know that, no matter how exhausting it is, there's this impact that you're having and you can see it almost and they want to get there. So they're willing to do what it takes. And there are some that don't want to do it. And I think it's okay if you don't want to. Um, I used to call it like a positive energy. Like I really worked hard. 
I'm almost exhausted, but I feel really positive about yes. what I'm doing versus, yes. you yes. know, if I was working towards something where I didn't feel like I was developing, I didn't understand why I was working towards those things. Then that feels like more negative energy. Even if I only put in like six yeah. to eight hours versus when I was working 16 hours and I was exhausted, I still felt very positive and had positive energy. It's a bit like running a marathon, right? You are not that I'm a runner, but it's like you, it's exhausting to get. But when you get the finish line, that exhilaration you feel mm. is well worth that exhaustion. And I think that that's what keeps a lot of folks here at MongoDB going for sure. It's definitely what makes us all get up in the morning and go to work because it's that that's that's a really big thing. I mean, look, the, to me, the motivations employees have, they vary. They vary by based on sort of your background and what you know, what's made you who you are. I don't think there's a one size fits all for what motivates employees. And I no. think the key that that employers, there's some basic things, of course, you know, that people want a good quality of, they want a good culture. They want, they want to be paid fairly. They want to be recognized and rewarded for hard work. There are some basic things. It's sort of like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? There are some basic things all employees need and want and look for in an employer. But ultimately what makes people stay and be successful has a lot to do with them individually. And it's not the same for every person. Some people are very much motivated by big meaty problems to solve. Others prefer to just roll up their sleeves, dig deep and clean stuff up. Like I think there are people who are, you know, you want to hire because you're trying to transform something in your organization. There are some people who come in who are very good at rebuilding something that you're trying to put in place. Some people are really just good at putting the foundations in place. Every, everyone's good at something. And as long as you create a job that plays to their strengths, they're going to feel motivated. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why the whole concept of talent management is so important to me is that it's like, it's almost like a casting job, right? Like you think about Eddie, let's look at a, a famous milk, the Godfather. You can't imagine anybody but Marlon Brando in that role. Right. It's casting. And because he was right for the job. If you imagine, if you put somebody else in there, it would just feel wrong. Right. And I think it's very similar with talent management is that you need to know what people are good at, what motivates them and matching them to the right jobs. It's a lot harder than people think it is. When you get that right match, magic can happen because you are playing to their strengths. They love doing what they do. They're good at what they do. They'll produce great results and they'll stay motivated. It's almost like it, it, it's a natural process. Um, right. of it. Yeah. yeah, that's. If you put Robin Williams in the Godfather role, it probably it would have been weird. <laughs> it would just have been weird. But that also changes what you're speaking to is not only the current state of affairs, at a MongoDB or any big so growing software company, but things constantly change every year. The market changes, yeah. the products change, customers yes. change, and that puts unique demands on, on the employees also. And there, to your point, you have to find the right people for yeah. the right time in the right place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You also have a unique talent of seeing people and situations for what they are. I think you got a real true sense of reality. Now, okay. what do you owe that? Is it street smarts or the ability to see the positives and the negatives so accurately in people? Is <laughs> it just years of right, experience? John, what is it? <laughs> no, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, what makes me see things for the real? I, 
I think I am a realist. I'm going to be honest with you. And I think it's just who I am. Maybe it's my life experiences and what I experienced growing up, my upbringing that's made me feel that, you know, I, I don't, I don't sugarcoat things. I don't want people to sugarcoat anything to me because I want to hear what it really is. Like, I don't like not knowing. Uh, I like, I like to just hear the truth. Um, I just genuinely, I think in one of our MongoDB's values, company values is intellectual honesty. It's my favorite value because I am a very direct person by nature. And my, my personal leadership philosophy is be, be direct, but be, be fierce, but be kind. So this, it's all about being direct, but also doing it in a way that's empathetic and human. Uh, and the intellectual honesty value goes hand in hand with that because I think to me, intellectual honesty is is quite liberating, John. I think that when you know where you stand, when there's transparency, mm-hmm. you don't think too much about anything else. You focus on doing your job. And I think when people know where they stand, they're not second guessing themselves. They're not wor- worrying about what their boss thinks of them or somebody else thinks of them. They just then focus on getting their job done. And I think it brings the best out of people. I think being a realist, I, I do think personally, my philosophy is the sooner you embrace reality, the happier you'll be. Because if you try to conjure up a situation that is not realistic for yourself, because it's never going to happen, then you're chasing a dream that you're never going to realize. And I think that there is, it, it, it's, it's not a recipe for success. And so for me, I think being realistic, being honest and direct and transparent with each other, it makes things go faster, smoother. You know where you stand. You're not not hiding behind fear all the time. And so I kind of apply that value in pretty much everything I do. Maybe that's what makes me, helps me see people because I like to ask questions and try to understand where they're coming from. I also like sometimes one of the ways in which I I get people to sort of sometimes open up to me is I share my own experiences. I think that's very powerful when you do that, because a lot of times, you know, particularly when you're an HR person talking to somebody, they're on their guard a little bit. Right. Or even if it's someone that's reporting into me or someone in my team and you're a senior leader in the company, you're trying to find out what's going on with someone. I think the the way to get them to open the the way you know what's going on is if you get them to be honest with you. The way you get them to be honest with you is, I think part of it is asking good questions, the what, why, and the how, listening intently with empathy, and then showing your vulnerability, sharing your experiences openly with them makes them share your because they feel comfortable doing that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're gonna feel like, what's she going to think if I say something like this? And I found that to be a very powerful way to get to get people to connect with you. And that ultimately you want them to feel comfortable, right? A little humor helps creating, building a building a space of trust helps. They want to know that you're there to help them when if they understand that, then they'll open up. And I also do think that people, particularly employees, I've always felt that when you try to bullshit employees, they see right through it. They see right through it. And it's not, it's not something I ever have done and will ever do. If I don't know the answer or I'm not comfortable saying it, I will just say it. I'm, I don't know. Because I think when you try to give them a scripted corporate answer, it doesn't land well. It's inauthentic. And I wouldn't be myself if I was inauthentic. And so that's just doesn't, it's just not something I can, I can live with or sleep with. <laughs> These are great lessons for any any leader at any level. It's not just, you know, HR. So when people do come to you 
And you're talking about intellectual honesty, but you have this sense that they're not actually telling you the whole story, meaning you kind of sense that something's changed. How do you get them to open up? I mean, you did talk about trying to align with them, asking questions, but you still sense in, well, they're really holding back a little bit on the situation. Do you have any advice for leaders on how to get people to open up a little bit more? You did say trust, and maybe sometimes that's built over time, which is sometimes difficult if they don't work for you. Or I would go, look, you can't bulldoze something out of somebody. That's not going to get you anywhere. I think when you're, if you're a leader, you've got somebody on your team and you know they're troubled and you're trying to find out what's bothering them. I think it's really important, first of all, to build the relationship. And that starts from day one. The minute you hire somebody or somebody joins your team, I I always say this to managers. I'm like, you've got to get to know the people who work for you. You can't just think of your job as directing their work. This is particularly true, I think, post-COVID. And even before that, like, I think, you know, because the lines between our personal and professional lives have pretty much been erased now, right? With, you know, we're in each other's homes. It had been that process had started before, if you ask me, before COVID. I think it's largely to do with the advent of the smartphone. You know, you have the world at your fingertips. It's very hard to ignore it. Yes. And it affects you. And you're going to bring that with yourself to wherever you're going, to your in your home, in your workplace. And now post-COVID, when your home and workplace have become the same thing, it's always there. And I think that I always say, like, managers have to, it's it's harder to manage people these days because I think that. You have to really get to know them almost on a personal level, which is not comfortable or easy for everyone to do, but you do have to get to know them because a policy manual I put in place for you is not going to help you manage these people, right? So you've got to get to know them. When you get to know them, you know what motivates them, what makes them happy, what stresses them, how they react to different situations. Then having conversations with them, even the more difficult ones become easier, the more you get to know them. So some of it is a function of time. I don't think that you're going to get to really figure out what's bothering somebody with one conversation. It's going to take you more than one or two attempts to get there. And it's okay. I I think that they have to feel comfortable. And that may mean it's a three, four part conversation. But sometimes you have to persist, particularly if your gut is telling you something is off and this person isn't telling me. I do believe that as leaders, we have to trust our gut instincts. And I've made mistakes where I have not trusted my instincts and I've paid for it, where I've made, I delayed making a decision and then realized, oh my God, now it's too late. I do think there's something called a gut instinct, especially yeah. as your intuition, you become, sure. yeah, intuition, you have to trust sense, yeah. You have to trust. Now in those situations where you feel like somebody still hasn't opened up to you, have you left the meeting and then said, I'm I'm going to register this and find a way to come back to this situation and yes. bring it up again. Yeah. Yes, definitely. I've done it many times when I, I have a conversation. I know that I didn't get everything I wanted to get out of it. I will sometimes. I do think sometimes people need space. One of the other things I often ask people is, "There's is there something you're not telling me? Just putting it out there, right? Is there something you're not telling me because you're afraid, you're yes. concerned that I might react negatively to it? By saying that and saying that, I want to assure you, I'm not going to react negatively. I just want to understand what's on your mind. That puts people more at ease. But look, all said and done, it sometimes they will not get there if they don't know you well enough. And sometimes, therefore, it takes more than one conversation to get I there. I think sometimes they need space and time. So they let some of it out. They When they go back to their office, then they realize, mm-hmm. I didn't really tell her everything. 
And most people are pretty honest about with themselves. So when you give them some space and some time and you come back again, then things resurface again. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you also talked about some key characteristics for, you know, a leader, which was, you know, listening, intuition, questioning. What about any other characteristics like curiosity or is there any other key characteristics that you think, you know, make a great leader? So many I can think of. One of my, we have, so we have 13 leadership principles here at MongoDB that we've, we've created a couple of years ago. And my favorite one in that list is leaders embrace adversity. I love that maybe because I feel that it's very easy to be a good leader when everything is going well. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's hard to be a good leader when things are not going well. And when I say not going well, there are many flavors of that, right? It doesn't have to mean it's the end of the world, but something as simple as if you've got a person in a team with a performance issue and you're having difficult conversations with them, that's also an, a form of adversity. How you react when the chips are down, I think really does show the true character of an individual. And this is particularly true with leaders. Are you using that moment to engender trust or hero trust? Are you using that moment of adversity to really understand what's going on? Or are you just giving up? Is it fight or flight? Like, I think that there is, that's that's a very important aspect of how do you respond to people and situations when things are not going well? I think that speaks volumes about a leader. And a lot of leaders have to recognize people are watching you all the time. Even all when the you time. Think they're not watching they're all, you, they're watching you. And they're always talking about you. Always oh. talking about you. Good, bad, and ugly. And so I think <laughs> that this aspect of embracing adversity is is really important to me. Um, so in addition to all of that, so that's one of my favorite like leadership principles we have here. And it's something I abide by a lot, which is why I say that's why I do think that being direct helps because then the adversity sometimes doesn't come as a surprise. Because I think when people feel that, this is particularly true when you're dealing with employees that have performance issues, right? A lot of people say that, oh, the person doesn't want to listen to the feedback. I just want to get rid of that person. No, but did you tell them? Was it a surprise to them? When it's a surprise to them, it becomes a violent conversation by its very nature. So what did you, could you do differently? I think that in that kind of a situation, the power is in the leader's hands and you can, you can make a choice about how you want to use that power. You can use that power by being super direct and honest with the person from day one, or you can ambush them. And I think ambushing them is a bad idea. It I love the question leader. that you just asked, which is the right question. What have you done as a leader? If that's an issue, first of all, have you told them about it? And what have yeah. you done to help yeah. them not do that or help them develop a skill or whatever the issue is? Do they even know? They haven't done it. It's the leader's fault, right? I I think it is. You say like when someone leaves a company that worked for you, I used to tell people, you have to go look in the mirror and figure it out, Uh figure out, did you hire the wrong person? Mm -hmm. Were you not capable of developing that person or could you not lead that person? Because you have to figure out which one of those three it was because now you have to correct it. Otherwise, you're going to keep making the same mistakes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a very important part. And I think most of the times I see in my my professional career when performance or talent issues have gone awry is when it was a surprise to the individual. The leader did little to no self-reflection and you didn't give them feedback. And so you are now in this situation where 
the person doesn't like what they've heard because they were surprised and blindsided by it, you are given up already. There's no winning in that. And nobody, both parties walk away from it feeling terrible about it. But that's my point is that that's why I, I think that being direct is important. Sometimes it's, it's not pleasant giving people feedback they don't want to hear. I'm not, I'm not underestimating that. But if you're doing it in the best interest of the person and they really believe that that's genuine and unique. Absolutely. Then I, the I think, I I think they, they, ha they, they have to accept it, whether they like they it. They do. Right? Yeah. And a lot of you times they may not like it, but if they think you're really trying to develop them, in my experience, they, they, they take it and they're, they're okay with it. I think if they know it's going to help them, they will. And I think it has to start early, if I'm honest, because one of the things that I, I speak a lot to are like our new grad classes that come in every year and they often ask for career advice. And I, I tell them a story of my own story, which is I think for the first five years of my working life, I didn't know what I wanted to do. It took me a while to kind of find my calling. And what I say to them is that in the first five, six years of your professional life, you have to really listen to the feedback you're getting because it's the only way you're going to know what you're good at doing because you won't know. I mean, even, I mean, there are some people that have a vocation, passion, calling, you know, doctors, teachers, they go to school for that. This is what I want to do. This is the only thing I've ever wanted to do. But I think the vast majority of us don't know when we, I mean, I didn't go to college thinking I was going to be a chief people officer. I really didn't. How many but, people went to school thinking they were going to go into sales either? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I don't even get a degree in sales. <laughs> so it's like That's the point. So you, you come out of it and you're like, first five years for me, it took me a while to figure out. And how did I eventually figure out is by listening to what people were telling me about what I was good at doing or what mm -hmm. I was not good at doing. Now, sometimes there's a little bit of luck involved. The right position comes along at the right time. All of that is a given. But if I wa wasn't clear about what I knew about myself, I don't know that I would have picked, made the right choices. And I think that starts very early. And this is why I say you've got to listen to the feedback that comes your way. And it's the only way you're going to grow. It's the only way you're going to know what you're good at, not good at. And then you can find your calling. If you start, if you start by resisting it, you're doing yourself a massive amount of disservice. Not everyone's out to get you. Keep in mind, your manager in particular, right, is not their success depends on your success. So there's no reason actually for them to not want you to be successful because if you do your job well, they look good. I say this to my team all the time. I said, you guys are the ones who make me look good. So I want you to be able to do your job at your fullest potential because if you can't, then I can't be successful. And people don't always get that, that they don't realize that they think their managers always have to get them. And it's not that I don't know how it helps them right. if they do that. Right. When people aren't coachable, what do you think is the underlying cause for them not being coachable? It's a good question. Um, I think it boils down to mindset and will more than anything else. I really feel that if you want to do a good job and to be fair, like I've not always been like a star performer my whole life. There have been moments when I failed and I've been given some very tough feedback. I could have chosen to just deny it and not do anything with it, but I leaned in and I'm very glad I leaned in because, and I think it was up to me. Once your manager has given you the feedback, I think it's up to you. Mm -hmm. If they're willing to coach you, they're willing to give you whatever support you need. You've it's, it's got to be a two way street job. Like, I don't think it's important for a leader. It, a big part of our job is to develop and coach our people. But it is a two way street. If you've got a person on the other side that is unwilling.
to lean in, it is never going to work out. Yeah. And so when it comes to that individual, for me, I think when people are not willing to make it work, it's usually because they they don't want to and they're disengaged and they don't feel like they can be successful. And at that time, I think it's time to cut the cord. Like, I don't know that they can ever be successful. Yeah. I think it's usually mindset. It's not that people are fundamentally uncoachable. Um, I thought sometimes that they're just a little scared and they're they, and they're insecure. So they're a little scared of trying something that they've never tried they've before. They've never done before. A new yeah. skill, skill and you're trying to push them on that new skill and coach them and they become uncoachable. And I've always thought like, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist or something, but there's something underlying here as to why yeah. they don't want to be coached and don't want to change. Yeah. And, they, and sometimes you try really hard because you want the person to be successful, but they just not doing it. And you just can't figure it out. Can't figure it out. It's very yeah. true. Very true. <laughs> now let's go back to when you mentioned a little bit on, uh, one of your discussions on, you know, when an employee leaves a company, mm. what, do, what do you think, you know, in general, not MongoDB, but in general, what are the top three reasons why an employee leaves a company? What you I normally think, hear is they don't leave companies, they leave the manager. They leave their manager, yeah. Mm. Um, I think that's a, look, ultimately, if you think about a person's job, right, you're going into work, whether you do it work from home or not, doesn't matter, your virtual workplace, you work with a group of people. It's usually your manager, your colleagues, a few cross-functional folks. If you don't enjoy that experience and you're not having fun, you don't like the people you work with, no amount of money is going to keep you in a company. Right. Yeah. I'm firmly, I know that a lot of times you look at all this exit survey data. A lot of times it says it's comp related. They got more money. They got a better offer somewhere, et cetera, et cetera. I think it boils down. I'm sure it plays a role. I'm sure if somebody is, if you get a really outsized offer from somewhere and it's, an, it's a better job, why wouldn't you take it, right? There are some things that you can't argue with, which is it's a better job. It pays well. It's a step up in their career. You can't blame a person for taking that job, right? But when they take that job, what are they walking away from? Did, they, did that just come to them? That can happen. It's, I mean, I've been very fortunate. Like my last two jobs I've taken, it's not because I was fundamentally unhappy. It was that something better came along. But there are times when people are pushed out. And I think it's because they stop liking what they do. They're not enjoying, they're not having fun at work anymore. And when I say fun at work, it's not, oh, let's all sing Kumbaya and drink beer and play ping pong. But it's about, you've got to love what you do ultimately. And you've got to enjoy the company of your coworkers because you spend most of your day with them. You've got to enjoy the culture of the company and know how and 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 what it has, how you experience it. It matters. I think those are the things that drive people out. I think it's the coworkers, which includes your manager and how your team environment is, the culture of the company and the experience of working there. And last but not least, whether you're getting adequately re rewarded and recognized for the work that you do. And that's not always monetary. Monetary, that's obviously one way of rewarding and recognizing people. But do you actually get credit for your ideas? Do you get credit for the impact mm. you have? Or is somebody else taking the credit instead? Yeah, that's right. very that's often important. something that frustrates people. And they're like, okay, I'm out of here. Yeah. Another thing that I think connects to that is if people are not clear about, they're not feeling or... And it is a feeling, I think, that you need, when you're being developed, when you're learning and growing, you know it. You know it because you know you're learning something new. I feel like, oh my God, I learned something new today. You know it. 
And when people feel like they're no longer learning and growing, that's another reason people leave. And learning and growing to a lot of people translates as promotions. That's certainly one way in which you learn and grow. But it's, do you have a job? Like if I think about someone like me, who's actually ever going to get promoted beyond where I am, but <laughs> is this job actually teaching me something new every day? And yes. the answer is unequivocal yes, right? Mm -hmm. And I think if people are not learning or growing, that's another reason they leave. That's why I think enablement is such a big enablement is so big in companies, especially when you have a lot of young people. Yes. If they have an offer for even more money, but the current company they're in, they like the manager that they work for, they are learning, they are growing, the company's constantly challenging them, but also training them. Yeah. A lot of the time it's still like, well, why would I leave here just for a little extra money when I don't know if they're gonna train me, develop me, yeah. help me grow in the other yeah. in the yeah. other company. I also think when you think there's more potential to have impact, like there are a lot of times, I mean, no question, like I get calls from recruiters all the time and I'm like, I've got so much more I want to do here. There's so much more opportunity for impact. Why would I go somewhere else? And that to me is very directly connected to learning and growing. And that's the fun at work that I'm talking about. Like yes. the fun you, yeah. the, the, the satisfaction you get when you've done good work, you've been recognized for it, you're learning something new. That has nothing to do with how much money you make. It has everything to do with the people you work with, the manager you have, the environment the company is giving you, the culture and how the company is giving you new opportunities. It's nothing to do with money. Yeah. I also want to go back to what you said about when people leave. And I've always when asked questions on their resume when they're changing jobs and yeah. tried to figure out, to your point, were they running towards something or away from or they something. running away from something? Yeah. So important when you're looking it at is. that. And look, you can sometimes run away from somewhere. It's okay to do that. Um, Just not all the I'm, time because then it starts to speak. Not every year. Not that's <laughs> you, yes. Then it's you. Then it's definitely you. It's then not it's the you. That's a problem. <laughs> that's very now, true. Now, when people are going out, the, let's say they are going out the door, again, in general terms, mm. how many times do people blame their manager, but they don't see their own issues uh, uh, that they oh, have better? Very affect. often. Yeah, very right. often, very often. So they kind of, is that because they start to take a little bit of the victim mentality? Like I'm a victim. I had a bad manager. And I think so. Sometimes they, they have a bad manager. They don't see that they have their own issues. And you and you probably have already done your homework on the people to know whether or not, you know, the, yes. they have their own issues here and they're just not yes. seeing. Yes. Look, I think there are times when people leave and they blame the manager and the manager. It, it sometimes is the manager, to be fair. Right. The manager yeah, right. maybe did not take the time to give them the feedback didn't get to take the time to help them see what they were doing well or not doing well. And so they feel like, okay, I'm not getting anything out of this manager. I'm out of here. Sometimes it's, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear that they're not doing a good job because maybe they've never had to prove themselves before. Um, I do think that, look, the manager has a really big role to play in your experience in a workplace, whichever workplace, whatever job you have to do. So the manager's role is very important. And it, Sometimes, after all, it can take something very small for someone to feel like the manager doesn't care anymore and leave. And sometimes it's a good thing, because if you don't trust the person you work for, you're not going to be successful. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes I think that it's it's just denial. There is a level of denial. I think that I've seen in my experience, there's a mix. It's I've seen bad managers as a result of which people leave. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there are other extenuating circumstances. There are, there are times when the employee themselves just doesn't want to hear 
the the feedback and they feel that it's unfair, et cetera, et cetera. And they walk out. Sometimes they just, it's the luck of the draw. Maybe they landed with the long role and just weren't able to be six of the casting issue, right? Sometimes people are in the wrong role yes. and they're yes. not able to scale up. Like however brilliant Robin Williams is, he's a brilliant actor. We all know that. He would never have been able to do that job. Right. So for me, sometimes it's like, I think some people just don't scale to, the, to whatever it is you want them to do. And you tell them, sorry, it's not working out. They don't like it because they know they're talented. They know they're skilled. They're just not skilled to do what you expect them to do. And there is a mismatch. That happens a lot. To me, that is a very, very common reason I see uh, working relationships break. Yeah, and anybody who's played sports on this. Anyone that's played sports understands that, you know, you get to a certain level, you think you're going to keep going. And all of a sudden there's people that are a lot faster, quicker, stronger, and better, more talented than you. And you realize maybe it's time for me to go do something else. And some jobs are not meant for them. Like, also, if, for example, if in a company like MongoDB, for example, which is growing so much, right. I also think that our, the skills that we sometimes look for in certain jobs changes, evolves with time. Yes. And when that changes, a you know a good, really good sales rep that was super successful for the last four years may not be successful in this new model that we we're, we're implementing. And so that it doesn't mean the person's bad, but no. they're not right for this role. But when right. they're told by their manager they're not doing their job well, there's a sense of indignancy, right, with them. Like, what do you mean? Look at my track record. I've been you know selling so well. Look at my 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 attainment numbers. But you're not, you're not meeting that new bar that has been set now. Yes. It may not be a higher bar. It's just a different bar sometimes. And you're not able to meet it. And right. I think at those times people are like, okay, I'm out of here. And they'll blame the manager on the way out, understandably. On that point, I had Brian Halligan on, right? And we were talking about the same issue, especially yeah. uh, the leaders. Uh -huh. And he was saying how he's on his like fourth generation of leaders. But he was he was talking. We, we talked about two things. On one side was the skill set that mm -hmm. people may not get to the next level. The other thing that he had found is that people either had, you know, me value, team value mm -hmm. or enterprise value. And he found that people that only had me or team value couldn't scale up to, you know, uh. enterprise value. So maybe they even had the skill set, but they didn't have the mindset or they had the mindset, but they didn't have the skill set. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a pretty interesting way to think about it. It is actually, now that you say that, right? Like I think if, if I think about it in the MongoDB context, one of the things we talk about all the time is as you, as you go, you become a more senior leader in the company, right? You're no longer a functional leader. You're a MongoDB leader. Yes. And you an have to put leader. your company first. Like it's the owner's mindset. In fact, it's one of our values too, is like own what you do. And that leaders think like owners or they act like owners, which is, you can't always, you've got to think about where you sit in that larger a game, board game, right? Like you, you're one cog in that wheel, but it's that larger mission that you are part of, which is the MongoDB mission, it becomes more important. Absolutely. You're no longer just a sales leader or an engineering leader or an HR leader. You're a MongoDB leader now and you have to think with your company hat on. And that's, and a, that's a shift. That's definitely yeah. a shift. And you can see it very clearly. You can almost look at people that you work with yeah. and say they either they're either an employee or they're an owner. owner. And there's kind of no in between. Yeah. I also think that it can. It doesn't even have to be at the most senior levels. It can happen at any level in the company. I've seen right. employees at junior levels in the company who think like owners. 
Yes. We're always putting the company first. The thing is, it's definitely a mindset, but it becomes a more important mindset to have as you move up the organizational hierarchy, in my opinion. Absolutely. I want to go back to something you've brought up. I've listened to you now and you kept bringing up when it was the leader, you kept bringing up trust, Mm. trust, trust, trust. It's felt to me like listening to you is like a common theme. So Mm -hmm. for leaders that are on this podcast, what would you tell them is the best way to try to develop trust with the people that work with you? It's I, I'm, I'm a big believer in the trust equation, which I'm sure you've heard of, which is credibility, reliability, intimacy divided by self-orientation. Well, you're going to have to repeat that slowly. <laughs> it's credibility. Credibility. Reliability. Reliability. Intimacy. Which Intimacy. And that's plus, 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 and then divided by self-orientation. So if you're very self-oriented, you're going to not be able to build trust. Right. Because building trust is about the other person. Actually, right. Right. It's yeah. not about you. It's about right. you have to take you, your your yeah. ego and everything yeah. off. Exactly. And leave it at home. Leave it at home to work yeah. for the other people. It's almost yeah. like when you become a parent, it's not about you. Yes. And, yes. It's about Very the kids. True. And everything's yeah. about developing the kids. It's Definitely. you no longer. You no longer matter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> When it comes to your kids. No, I think for me, that's really important. You know, I, I this is something I tell my team a lot, particularly the, the te- people on my team that do business partnering with the business units, HRBPs. It, you have to, so the credibility piece really comes, I mean, do you know what you're doing? That's basically what credibility is all mm-hmm. about. Right? And so when you have a moment to show what you bring to the table, you need to be able to competently and confidently showcase that. Reliability is really about, can they rely on you? Are you going to get them what they need? And intimacy is about relationship building to me. So I think it comes with the, I've, I've always felt like when you're, you know, getting into a new working relationship with somebody, first, you do need to build a relationship with those individuals, right? And, and sometimes a relationship is something as simple as having a cup of coffee with each other or, or sharing a meal together that get to know each other a little bit, just as human beings first. The credibility, reliability piece, one of the things I tell my HR business partners all the time is sometimes you have to give the business leaders what they want before you can give them what they need, mm. which is sort of like, because when you, if you walk into a new role, you're working with a colleague, any role, doesn't matter. You can't start by saying, here's the things that you guys are not doing. And here's the things I'm going to help you figure out. You have to first understand what they need and what they're asking you to give them. And do that first, do the quick, get the quick wins out of the way first. It's the only way to build credibility with someone is what are the low, what's the low hanging fruit that you know that they're dying to fix? Well, go fix it. Once you fix it, what you get with them is, oh, this person knows what they're doing and they relieved a, pay, a pain of mine. I'm, I've got time for you now. And so to me, it's, it's about, you've got to be good at what you do. You've got to give them what they want in terms of, you know, delivery and you have to build relationships. And you have to remember that the trust equation is about them. It's not about you. How do you get them to see that they can rely on you, that they can trust you? That's what you're trying. So being authentic, all of these things go towards building trust. I also think that ultimately people want to know that you're going to have their back, especially if you're a leader managing people. One of the things that I think is really, really important is that you always have your teams back and they know that you will always, like I say this to my team, I will push them hard. I will push them outside their comfort zone, but I will always have your back, which means that you make a mistake. It's okay. But are you coming to the conversation prepared? Are you listening? 
Are you asking good questions? You may not. You may come with an idea. Like sometimes my team members come to the executive team meeting and they present a idea, a proposal, what have you. Sometimes it goes well. Sometimes it doesn't go well. But I never let when when I see things going awry, I always step in because I don't want my team to ever feel like I don't have you back. Mm-hmm. Because the minute they feel that way, I lose their trust completely. I can't throw them. Sometimes I'll take the blame for something because it's important. You can't let them, can't leave them vulnerable to other people's impressions. And sometimes I think that it, it matters to them that I have their back. And I think it's it, that's another way to build trust as well. Well, you should, you, you, you knew what they were going to present or they were going to yeah. do in a sales process, let's say. And if they failed, you, you have to have their back, right? Have you to. were the, you were the one to. that told them that that's what they should do. So you have to have yeah, their, you have to have their back. And I think that I've seen too many leaders that don't are just are quiet in those conversations mm-hmm. and their person feels like, oh boy, here we are. I've been abandoned. They feel exposed. Yeah. They feel abandoned. Yeah. There, you know, like, or when something gets escalated to you, like I get, I get calls sometimes from business leaders who say, well, I, I, I've got this problem and I've talked to this person on your team, but nothing is happening, et cetera, et cetera. I can handle that one of two ways. I could get defensive and argue with the business leader, or I could go yell at the person I'm, that works for me. But I think the key that that moment is first to slow down and just listen. What is the business leader trying to tell you? Understand, okay, I heard you. Leave it with me. I'm going to come back. But when I go to my person, if I, I have to listen to the same thing with them. I have to first hear their side of the story because the truth is always somewhere in the middle. And you, three, three sides to a story. Yeah. Inevitably, you find that neither party is wrong. They're just not communicating well with each other, most mm. of, more often than not. Or sometimes maybe somebody on your team is not understanding the problem that the business leader is trying to solve for. Mm. And so for me, it's, the listening piece and having their back is incredibly important to build trust with people that work with you, whether they work for you, their cross-functional colleagues. And to me, it also has a very direct connection to what I said earlier about intellectual honesty. When people know what you see is what you get with, and with, with Harsha, they're going to trust you more because they know you don't have a hidden agenda, which is why I'm, I'm a big believer in that because I'm going to tell you, like, I'm going to tell you, I agree. I don't disagree. Okay. You're right. You're wrong. I admit my mistakes too. And I think that that's how you build trust. People need to see you for who they are. People, because people can, can, they can smell inauthenticity a mile away. (laughs) I like the uh, formula, credibility, reliability, intimacy on the credibility piece. I've always thought you can't ask them to do something that you can't do yourself. Right. So uh, gotta, they, let, let them know, like I can do this. Yeah. So I'm not asking you to do something. And then the other yeah. part of that is sometimes you have to be able to see in your people what they lack. And if you can yeah. help them with something that they can't even see they lack and you help them with that and they grow, you know, then they, that starts to build a lot of trust also. Definitely. Yeah. Yes. I, I do think that you have to walk the talk. Like, I mean, I tell this my team is especially in my role as an HR leader, you know, I'm always telling business leaders about how they should think about their people and culture and talent. If I don't do that myself, then I'm not walking my talk. The walking my talk piece is so important. The role modeling is so important. You cannot expect people to do things for you that you do not do yourself. It's just not right. <laughs> so let's talk about this word you just brought up earlier is communication. Yeah. So how do you handle different motivations, sometimes conflicting motivations of leaders in different departments within the company. The sales guys say, hey, I sold a good deal. Customer support can't 
support the deal. The support people say, no, we can support the deal. Sales can't sell a good deal. Yeah. Sales is saying, if we only had this in the product, we could sell more. Why can't these damn development guys get us the stuff that we need? And back and forth, development people, why don't they sell what they already have? Yeah. You know, so how do you handle, because HR is in the middle of a lot of this. A lot of times, yeah. Different motivations, because they're all motivated differently. They're all compensated differently. They're all trying to do the best they can yes. for the company with yes. the right resources or limited resources. How do you handle it when they're coming to you and it's, and it may not be the leaders. It may sometimes be like mid-level managers or yeah, yeah, no. Buddy saying, hey, we got, I got a problem with these people in this other department. I think there's two two sort of tactics I, pref- I like to use. One is always reminding people about the bigger objective here and the bigger mission that we're all working for. It's that putting on your MongoDB hat versus your sales hat, your engineering hat, your product hat, your customer hat. Because we are all here to make MongoDB successful. And on that orientation needs to stay no matter what level you are. If you don't have that orientation, you're always going to be me versus you, right? Because we have people from many different walks of life in this company. And if you don't identify with the central mission, then you've got a problem. The second thing I think for me is understanding the role each of the departments play in a particular process, whatever the process is that they're arguing about, right? So yeah, okay, I need to I need to sell more workloads, acquire more workloads, whatever it is. What is the role the marketing person plays? What is the role the product person plays in that? What is the role the salesperson plays? They all play a role directly or indirectly. Some of the roles they play are have an immediate impact. So yeah, maybe a field marketing campaign that might result in you know some growth in a particular account, that's an immediate impact. The work that product does has a more longer tail because it takes longer to obviously you know develop a product feature. But understanding what your role is in that particular outcome, I think helps drive better conversations. Then it stops becoming a fight between this. The truth is that all of these things have to come together for us to be able to accomplish the business goals that we have to do, but they don't all come together at the same pace at the same time. But I think as long as you're, I, I always like to remind people, why are you here? What's the ultimate mission that we're trying to drive here? Two, what is the role that your team is playing in this particular process? And you have to think about what you can do differently. The third thing for me, as kind of fluffy as it might sound, is culture, right? Like we're all here. We're here to be, in fact, this is articulated in a couple of our values, this idea that we're here to build together. Each one of us has a role to play. And so if you're going to work for MongoDB, you have to live our values too and contribute to the values, which is ultimately the culture is nothing but a set of human behaviors. And we have to contribute. And if we keep pointing fingers at each other and we don't build together, we're not living our culture. We're eroding the culture. A bad culture is not going to help you attract better people into the company. You're not going to get anything done. And you're actually not going to make MongoDB successful as a result of that. So then reminding people that you're not living your values or, and then what is your role? And the fact that you're working for a higher, bigger purpose and mission here is the way that I like to think about it when I see these conflicts occur. Yeah. Your first and sometimes point it's also, to be honest, John, sometimes it's like you do have to give feedback. Like you have to tell one person you're not listening to the other person. Like you have to facilitate sometimes yes. conversations between two leaders who are not seeing eye to eye, maybe because they're not communicating clearly with each other. So it's important sometimes that, you know, as an HR person, part of my job and my team's job is to hold the mirror up to them and say, show them what they're not seeing, Mm. right? Okay. When you say this, 
here's how the other person is receiving it. So think about what you're saying. Because mm-hmm. sometimes the intent, more often than not, the intent is always in the right place. I don't think anyone, whenever I've been pulled into any of these kinds of, you know, conflicts, I don't think anybody has bad intent. It's how their words land, the impact yeah. that they're having yes. is what causes the problem. Sometimes you have to help them see how they are showing up, how the other person is perceiving it. Because when you're in the moment, you don't see it. But a third person watching this interaction between two people can see it. And so part of our job is also to go have those individual conversations and say, here's how you're, you're being received by the other individual. So think about that. And to actually facilitate a dialogue between the two and two, three individuals that may not be seeing eye to eye. Yeah. These, are, these are some of the things that I've tried to well, use. Your, fir- your first point goes back to the, the value, the me, team and enterprise value. And the second yes. point, I think what I found is like you have to actually understand the demands that are placed on that other person that you're asking them to do something for you. Yes. If you don't understand the demands that they have in their everyday job and how they're measured, then it's really hard to just say, give me this without understanding what they get and why they should help you and how, you know, because of how they're measured. Yeah, I, I fully agree. In fact, like a good example I can give you is, you know, we've, we've had every, every year towards the end of the fiscal year, we start getting a lot of noise and compensation in our company. Oh, comp is not good enough. It's not competitive enough. And, my comp team gets really frustrated by that, understandably, because they're starting to get complaints from like 15 directions. I have to slow them down and say, you have to recognize it's the end of the year. These people are under immense pressure to hire. It's not easy. This is the worst time of the year actually to hire because you're getting into that holiday season. It's a downward swing. And they're they're under pressure because their boss is putting pressure on them to hire. And guess what? It's an easy thing to point fingers at somebody else. So you have to put yourself in their shoes. You have to really understand What is the business problem they're trying to solve? They may think it's compensation. Maybe it's not. Maybe it is. We don't know that, right? But you've got to go in there dispassionately and not take it personally. The other thing people, I think, do take when these conflicts occur, I find that people take them too personally sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not easy to be dispassionate about it, but you almost have to force yourself to do that, I think. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise... You will make poor decisions. You have to try to put yourself in there. So what is the business problem you're really trying to solve for? Help me understand it. And then I'll tell you, is it really, a, is, is comp going to solve that problem for you? Or is it something else that we need to be figuring out? I think the minute you approach that conversation that way, also, I think it de-escalates the conflict. Then it doesn't come off as, because look, ultimately, to like you said, people want to be heard. People just want to be heard sometimes. They want to hear what, what's the problem. Here's my frustration. I want to let you know what my problem is. And they want you to listen to them before you say an outright no. (laughs) (laughs) Really? They just want want you to listen. I know. I've been in those. Exactly. And I feel like sometimes 50% of the battle is in listening to them. Right. And when they think that when they know that you've taken them seriously, then they're going to give you more grace ultimately. But if you walk into that conversation in a confrontational way and you take it personally, like somebody comes to me and complains about comp and I'm like, you're wrong. Not going to happen. Then they lose, you lose trust. You lose credibility. They're sort of like, okay, you're not interested in helping me. You're not even interested in listening to me. So why should I trust that you'll do anything ever for me? I think that it's all interconnected. Yeah. Uh, Eventually. Hey, two years ago, 
Everything yeah. was up and to the right, the stock market, the yeah. economy. And now we've kind of, I think most employees have kind of settled into, okay, we're going to be in this like grind of the economy for a long period of time. Like how have employee motivations changed since that, let's say, little bit of a cliff that we fell into? Um, it's interesting, right? I think that we've seen, I think it's a, it's a tale of two cities, if, if I'm honest. I think there are, there's a cross-section of leaders and employees who have embraced the reality because they've been through it before. And they just say, okay, I'm just going to go with the flow here. I think there's a cross-section of people who don't actually know what to do with it because they've never been in that situation. I think we're yeah. seeing sides. Right. Um, I will say that I think that as you, as you think about the ups and downs we've been through in the last two to three years in this industry in general, uh, I do think that it, it, we, we need more resilience as leaders. And so I think that if you are not exhilarated by that exhaustion, you're not going to make it that I was talking about before. The grind. The grind. It, it is a grind. And I think you've got, you've, got to, you've got to really believe. I do think there's a massive sense of entitlement in the technology industry. Yes. Because it's enjoyed so much success for such a long period of time. And it's sort of like things came crashing down. I do think there are many people who think this is a blip and it will get better. And it probably will, but it's going to be a long while. I think it might get worse before it gets better. Mm -hmm. um, so how have employee motivations changed? I think employees are starting to look for slightly different things now, even in the technology industry. And you talk to our recruiters, they'll tell you like simple things like they want just what they just want stability. Because they've seen so much upheaval up and down. They want to work for a company that is still growing as opposed to a company that's laying people off. Um, they are, they are tempering their expectations more. I think the quality of the job, the pot future potential of the companies is more attractive to them. One of the other motivations that I've seen that has changed a lot is this, is the whole hybrid working thing. And it's nothing. To, I, I don't know that it has anything to do with the ups and downs, but I do think that post COVID, People have started to value that flexibility immensely. We've had quite an influx, candidly, of candidates who, have, who are interested in MongoDB because we've kind of recommitted to our hybrid working model, whereas many other companies are forcing employees to come back. And mm. that's become a deal breaker for a oh, lot really? of employees, okay. which was, it's a little surprising. It came out of left field, but it, it was a little surprising. Um, but that's what people want. Um, I do think that it hasn't fully sunk in, though, the reality of what's coming up. So I think there's a cross-section of employees whose motivations haven't truly changed. And I think there's a cross-section that, that have. And those that have changed their motivations are people who've been through this before and who are recognizing that <clears throat> the stability matters more. You got to get some water. Able, say it again? You have to get some water. <laughs> no, no, I'm fine. <clears throat> um. So let me, let me ask you about salespeople now. We, we have a couple uh, <laughs> more minutes before I know you got to go. But, you know, yeah. salespeople, are the, the way that I look at it is re realistically, they're the only group in the company that gets a hard report card every 90 days. Sure. You know, they live in 90 day increments, always trying yeah. to make the quarterly number, which is super stressful, right? Yes. What is your experience in trying to like address stress, burnout, even, you yeah. know, mental health concerns with, 
Absolutely. You know, with salespeople. So I think that there are, there are three levers, right? One, I think we have to hire right. We have to make sure that we test for resilience when we hire people into sales because mm -hmm. the grind problem again, right? That's the life it is. And so people need to be really prepared when they come in. So we need to be careful about how we hire and how we onboard and train them in the initial stages of their time with us. And as I think you all know, uh, at MongoDB, we have a very strong sales enablement program. We actually call it the boot camp. So it is a boot camp. And it, they, you, you, it's, it's, it's a little bit a dose of reality. It's like, here's what's to expect. So setting expectations, hiring the right profile, a very big part of managing this, this, this 90-day increment stress. The second lever for me is really manager capability, which is teaching our managers to identify early warning signs, whether it's through their one-on-ones, when they do their QBRs, because we have a very, very rigorous inspection process in sales in the form of the QBRs, which, as you know, are very holistic. They're not just about numbers. They're about people. They're about recruiting. They're about talent, about org design. And that gives you the ability to inspect and know what's happening in parts of your business. And so teaching managers and leaders to run quality QBRs and to leverage their one-on-ones so you can see the early warning signs of somebody feeling the stress or the, of whatever the pressure of the job, et cetera. And the third thing I think is making sure that we have at a company level, the right framework and tools available for people to manage stress, whether it's time off, it's mental health benefits, it's the ability to pick up the phone and, you know, counseling helplines, things of that nature. You have to have that infrastructure at a company level but the thing that brings the company level down to what happens on the ground is the manager plays a really big role in that. And then I also do think you need to hire the people with the right mindset and set clear expectations with them that your life is 90, 90 day increments because yeah. people get more stressed when they don't know that it's how it's going to be. And right. so I think that setting that initial expectation, giving them that enablement and training upfront is really, really helpful. And we do that not just upfront, but even every time a person get, moves up the career ladder in sales, they go through significant enablement training and training so that they're prepared for what the next stage of responsibility is going to bring to them. Um, so I think that that's how we try to manage it. I don't, I'm not saying that we're always successful, but uh, I do think our sales leaders are actually quite good at noticing signs of burnout early on and bringing HR in and helping them figure out what to do with the individuals. I like the early warning signs. Um, yeah. Because there's going to be a lot of people that are just not going to pick up the mental health phone and they're Absolutely. not going to talk no, about the stress no. that they're under. They're not going to talk about how it might be having an effect yeah. at home. And um, they're definitely not so, going to always talk about it with their manager, but you've got to have ways to figure it out. And I think these QBRs combined with your one-on-ones and how you get to know your people, you learn, as you get to know a person, you know when they're stressed. Yeah. And that's why the whole building relationships piece with people who work for you is quite important. It goes back to that intimacy piece that you talked about. You know, you have to really ask yes. your leaders when your rep, one of your reps go home, pick one of them. When they mm -hmm. go home tonight, see mm -hmm. their spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, partner, whatever it might be. What are they going to say about yeah. how their day was at MongoDB? And if you don't know, you have no idea and you have no idea. You're not, for the last you're not managing weeks. them well. You're not really intimate yes. with them, right? Yes. So that's that's so important to get those key warning signs. Otherwise, a lot of people would just hide those things. Absolutely. And then they'll just up and quit on you. Yes, definitely. 
they're not they're not overt signs and they'll never tell you until you unless you know how to look for them. So you have to teach managers how to do that. Yeah, for sure. Harsha, it's been one phenomenal hour having you the best I've HR enjoyed person it too, in the John. entire world on the podcast. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks yeah. very much. Thank you, Harsha. We'll and thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.